Y'all are still standing up. Look at that. It's like a test of the emergency broadcast system or something. So good morning. I'm Tim. You may know that. You may not. I'm one of the pastors here. I talk every once in a while. And this is week eight of our series in the gospel-centered life. So um, the overarching goal of the Gospel-Centered Life series, and something that I've been very thankful for. I've, I've had um, this curriculum pop up in my life occasionally over the past 10 years, just like when you least expect it, boom, here it is. And it's always been like a breath of fresh air to me um, for somebody to say, hold up, let's talk about the basics, let's see where your heart actually is, and let's help you uh, look into what the basics are of Christianity and what uh, the truth is from the word about where your heart actually is. How can I pursue Jesus when I know that the word teaches me that my heart is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things, and then ask the rhetorical question, who can know it? How do we do that? Sounds like a pretty steep hill to climb, but honestly, this series and Pastor Josh preaching it has been helping me see some foundational truths. So in the name of foundational truth, Let's rehearse the things that we've said for the last seven weeks to make sure that you get just a little bit of it, right? So the main goal, say it with me, is, here's the series point. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at y'all. I want y'all to be talking back to me. That's good. <laughs> stay, stay with me. Talk back. That's cool. React. So more than that, more than the gospel is the good news, that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's these other three points, and these are the goals, I would say. So, let's see. The gospel-centered life is the continual rediscovery of these three truths. God is more holy than you can imagine. You're more sinful than you can realize. And the cross is more powerful than you know. So I don't know if anyone's drawn it out for you, or, or if you have a workbook, or if you've seen it before. I'm going to show you a diagram later on in the message that kind of like illustrates that. So God is more holy. As you, as you read the Bible more, as you walk in community longer, as you walk with the Lord for 5, 10, 15, 20, 35 years, your line of God's holiness is going to go up and up and up and up. Because the deeper you delve into the word, the more times you read through that reading plan, the more times that you actually like hang out in a passage that you may have read five, six, seven times, but you, but you say, Lord, help me to slow down and help me to understand what you're actually saying. The more that you do that, the greater your perception of God's holiness will be. So imagine this line graph and God's holiness going up and up and up, your perception of it. Then also, as you read, you'll see depths of your sinfulness that you're never, ever, ever going to have seen now. The next time you read it, you'll see more. And then the next time, and then the next time, the depths of the sinfulness will go farther and farther down. And anyone that builds anything knows that as a gap expands like that, if something is not supporting that gap, structural integrity will not take place. A worldview like that will not be sustained unless you have a cross large enough to hold everything up. So as God gets holier in your perception, and as your perception of your sinfulness diverges from that holiness, the cross has to step in and fill the gap. And so that's our goal through this whole series that we'll conclude next week, is to see that the cross has to fill that gap, or else you're going to start to see deformities. Things are going to get lumpy. You're going to start seeing parts of your life collapsing in because the cross is not large enough to be holding that distance in place. Make sense? So those are the three things that are kind of like encompassing the worldview that we're looking to reinforce here. And then there was another thing that Pastor Josh talked about last week that I just want to reinforce. You remember he was talking about the wind-up toys and the gears and all that stuff? So uh, there's a chart, Corey. It says God's grace right in the middle, and then there's like these two cycles. And so this is in a workbook that comes from this curriculum, and I think it's just helpful to like see it. So as we have God's grace in our lives— which comes through reading the word and applying the word to our lives through intentional heart questions, prayer, walking in community with folks that we trust, 
as God's grace is coming out and being applied to our lives, we're going to see it in two spheres of our lives. We're going to see the inner renewal of our lives through experiencing joy, repenting, and exercising faith. And then, I think I did the cycle wrong. So we're going to see sin because of God's grace in our life. He will reveal it to us because he loves us and has mercy on us. Because God's grace continues to work, we won't stop at just seeing the sin and feeling really bad about it. We'll repent and exercise faith. And God's grace will continue to propel us out of the repentance into an experience of joy in who he is, not in how good we just were that we conquered that sin. So we'll see God's grace continually cycling through that in different parts of our hearts. And then also, at the same time, God's grace is powering the outward movement. So I think sometimes we can like conflate inner and outer, and we can think that one is like kind of sort of driven by the other, and that's true. But I think we forget that God's grace is in the middle powering all of it. So maybe if our outer fruit, you know, rejoicing, dying to self, seeing opportunities and taking them in ministry, if we see that maybe falling behind a little bit, maybe our instinct is to go over to the inward thing and say, well, let me just work on disciplines, discipline, 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 which is good, but you're just missing the middle right here because you can spiritual discipline yourself till you're blue in the face, but if you're not relying on God's grace in the practice of that discipline, neither of these gears are turning. So I like to think of it, uh, Dan Cook, Mr. Gearhead Mechanic, kind of helped me think of it this way. Like, you have an engine in a car, and that engine is renewing the inside of the car, like air conditioning, if you're lucky enough to have AC in your car, and it's also driving the wheels forward toward the goal of being in the image of God. And so you have one engine driving inner renewal and outer pointed in the right direction. Make sense? So that is going to be driving what we're talking about today, which is the concept of forgiveness. And as we talk about forgiveness, I just want to put this statement right here. When the gospel really takes root in us, it begins to work itself out through us. So, and all this stuff is, is something that I really want you guys to think about and consider in your own life and take it into your life groups. As you talk about the topic of forgiveness this week, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. There's so many diverse opportunities to be practicing forgiveness in your life that we're going to look at biblical principles, but the application is going to vary. So consider this, and as you take it into life group, work hard toward practicing forgiveness and seeing what it looks like in your own life. But overarching, when God's grace takes root in us, then it works itself out through us. So we can't just be trying to duct tape some fruit onto the trees because we know people want to see fruit in our lives. We've got to be saying, am I thankful for God's grace? Am I dwelling in it? Am I abiding in Christ? Will the fruit be born of that? Yes. Will it take time? Yes. Is it hard? You better believe it. But it's the only way that it's actually going to happen. And if it's not perfect, welcome. <laughs> None of us are perfect. And we're trying to create an environment where we can be imperfect together and strive toward grace. Amen? All right. So, all of that is the biblical foundation for the study that we have. And today we're focusing on the topic of forgiveness. How's that for an assignment? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the most deep, heart-wrenching, um, nobody wants to talk about it, especially whenever it comes down to a specific example kind of thing. Forgiving people who harm us is one of the most difficult things you're ever going to do in your entire life. And the deeper the wound, the more challenging forgiveness is going to get. We often feel confused about what real forgiveness even looks like. And you hear it, and you hear the world, and you hear brothers and sisters in the church offering uh, definitions of forgiveness or ideas about forgiveness that may seem to contradict one another and it may lead you into a confusing state of mind. Are we to forgive and forget? Is that even possible to forgive and forget? Is that just aspirational? Is that something we should even be looking for? And does the Lord want us to use a forgive and forget model? Is forgiveness a one-time thing? 
Or is it something that happens progressively and continually? You got to put a couple more coats of paint on it. You got to do some maintenance on forgiveness. I don't know. And what if the person that has sinned against me isn't sorry? What if they never admit it? What are we called to do then? And what does forgiveness look like if the other person, maybe if you never even talk to them again? These are all the deep questions that come along with the topic of forgiveness. And if you're going to run head on with the topic, you've got to deal with the tough realities of it. Oftentimes we ask questions like this during some of the deepest valleys that we'll find in our lives. And the struggles that we have with forgiveness are some of the most difficult things to talk about and deal with. Even thinking about them is something that you may find excruciating, honestly. Um, And it's not like I want you to be uncomfortable, but the Lord wants you to root out the sin in, in your own heart and the opportunities to forgive and to reconcile. Have you ever found yourself thinking, I don't think I can ever move on from that thing, from those words, from that action, or from that lack of action? You ever found yourself just replaying that and say, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I just need to box that up because I don't think I can deal with it. So this morning, we're going to see that on the other hand, if we can find forgiveness, or if we can find a small piece of biblical forgiveness, you're going to see a crystal clear picture of what it looks like for God to save somebody. And what I want to show you is that biblical forgiveness and the practice of it will show you and will show the person that you will practice forgiveness toward a picture of what God looks like when he saves somebody. What does God look like when he chooses to forgive a debt before a person ever even expresses that they're sorry? So it's really gonna, we're gonna dive deep into what it looks like for somebody to be saved by grace. And we're gonna apply that to how do you practice forgiveness with people? So you ready? (laughs) Got your seatbelt on? So our main point this morning is that truly forgiving others is impossible until we're living in light of God's forgiveness. How's that for a (laughs) how-to? If you want some practical steps. It's impossible. How do I do it? Well, stop trying in your own strength, and then we're at step one. So forgiving, true forgiveness is impossible until we're living in light of God's forgiveness. And we'll cover this in two points, and we'll come back to them. They might flash on the screen for a minute, but we'll give you plenty of time to write it down. Um, The first point will be an image of forgiveness, and the second point will be an imperative to forgive. And there's a couple sub-points, because you know I can't just give you two points. So, (laughs) all right, Matthew 18 is where we're at. So turn in your Bibles or look on the screens at Matthew chapter 18, and we'll start reading in verse 23. And this is a, a parable from the Lord that clearly and dramatically makes the point of what we're talking about today. God's word says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and implored him, saying, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant came out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus' commentary on this is, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother 
from your heart. Let's pray. God, we know that this is your word for us this morning, and we acknowledge that this is not a standard that we are comfortable with in our own flesh. We look at a standard like this, and it's confusing, it's overwhelming, and it would be easy to say, let's fake it till we make it. But you want better for us, Lord, so we ask that you would help us to understand and look to you and run to you so that we can pursue this ideal of forgiveness and so that we can image your grace and your forgiveness to a world that desperately needs that image. In your name, amen. All right, so point number one, an image of forgiveness. This whole, pic- this whole parable is a picture of what Jesus is saying forgiveness should look like. This parable, if you look back earlier in the chapter, is um, it directly follows Peter saying, I have, a, I have this beef with somebody over and over and over, and I have forgiven them a lot. How much longer do I have to do this, Jesus? And he says what? 70 times 7. And so, like, it would be easy for someone to be, like, at the entrance to the stores now with the little COVID counter and be like, okay, 490. <laughs> I'm in a minute, you know? But he elaborates on the 70 times 7 with this parable in order to show you what his point is behind saying something like that. So before we jump into exactly what it means, I think it's probably helpful to clear the air and, and say a couple of things that this parable is not. Because people take this parable in some other direction sometimes, and I think it's just going to be clarifying. Number one, this parable does not mean that God will revoke the salvation of anyone that doesn't forgive someone else. It doesn't mean that you're a Christian, you make a bad choice, all of a sudden you're thrown into prison, um, meaning you're thrown away from God's presence in a way that's eternally separated from him. It doesn't say you're a Christian, you sinned, you're not a Christian anymore. Um, For the sake of time, I don't want to give you the whole rationale behind that, but I'm happy to explain it to you. I, I really am. But just assume that we're talking about Christians in this parable that are relating to one another and that God is not snatching anyone out of his covenant faithfulness. So we're talking about Christians here. Nobody loses their salvation in this parable. Point one of what it's not. Point two, um, does verse 35 lead us to believe that Jesus is referring to non-Christians in this parable. So was the first guy just not saved at all because he chose to have an unforgiving response to the second guy? That could be where your mind goes too. But Jesus is telling this parable to show Christians how to relate to one another. And honestly, if you're looking at this and you say, man number one has been forgiven of an immense debt, and then he goes and acts unregenerate, it kind of breaks down a little bit. So let me just say, how, how about this? If you see him acting, man number one acting toward man number two in a way that doesn't look like a Christian, and you assume that he just wasn't a Christian in the first place, this parable is not very significant. Like what you can take from the parable at that point is lost man acts like lost man. So it doesn't really have a lot of meaning. So we're going to say that these people are Christians, they're interacting with one another, and they're not interacting the right way. We're not saying that if you make the wrong choice, God revokes your salvation. We're not saying that only unsaved people ever act in unforgiveness and act in bitterness and act in vengeance toward one another. Because Lord knows we struggle with bitterness and we still believe. Lord knows that there are deep, lifelong things that the Lord is rooting out of us, but it's not the fact that we're not a Christian. It's a mysterious thing how brokenness can still run so deep in our hearts and the spirit still reside in our hearts. But it's a true thing, so we have to work with those truths. So, however, this parable does seem to imply that there are consequences for a lack of forgiveness. There are consequences in the Christian life for walking in disobedience. And what I'm drawing from this and what I'll expound on is that if a believer chooses to walk in an unforgiving attitude, then they'll experience relational distance from God. Not relational separation, but something will be hindering the relationship between you and the Lord. And also, you'll receive loving discipline from the Lord because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. 
and he wants you to be in his image. So in love, he will discipline you for, for walking in unforgiveness in the hopes that you'll see, repent, and grow. So there are consequences to walking in this, so we need to see what forgiveness actually looks like. Make sense? So that's what it's not. So let's talk about what it is. This parable is a picture of some people that carried some immense debt. That's our first sub point. So we have a guy that carried a lot of debt. Let's start way back to the beginning. So we start with the king. And the king, which by the way, the first time God is referred to as a king in any parable is this parable. And so we see God represented as a kingly figure here. And in a sense, he's reconciling his accounts. He's sitting on YNAB doing his thing. He's got his old school checkbook out and he's like trying to figure out so-and-so's handwriting. Like periodically, and an accounting is occurring. I don't think this is talking about like the accounting, if you know what I mean, like the judgment day. Uh, this is a king periodically taking stock of his assets to make sure that his inventory is in order. And as he is reconciling, he notices a line item that draws his attention. So he sees this guy, and for sake of like guy one, guy two, that's a lot. Let's just call this guy Jack. So he sees Jack here, and Jack is in the red to the king by 10,000 talents. So we got to define what talents is to understand the magnitude of this debt. It'd be easy to take talents out and just put the word dollars in and say, Jack owes the king $10,000. And you go, you know, $10,000, nothing to shake a stick at. I mean, that's a pretty substantial thing. You're going to need to make a plan. You're going to need to put that in your Dave Ramsey snowball um, but it's, it happens. We take out car notes for $10,000, maybe more. We got student loans that we're paying on. Those balances are sitting at ten grand, maybe more than that. $10,000 is not nothing, but it's something that you can plan for. It's a manageable debt. But $10,000 is not 10,000 talents. So, and it's hard to make this sort of like equivalency. So let me just give you some examples of how much a talent would be worth. So around the same time period that this parable is happening, the total tax revenue for Judea and Samaria together was 600 talents for the whole year. Everyone's tax revenue for those two provinces, 600 talents. Tax revenue for Galilee, everybody that lived in Galilee paid a total of 300 talents in taxes in a given year on average. Um, and this guy owed 10,000. So one guy owes 30 times like more than a province's entire tax revenue. So he's in the hole. Um, when the tabernacle was built, the Lord said to the people that are building the tabernacle, overlay all of the elements in gold. You think about the Ark of the Covenant, you think about all the other things in the tabernacle that would have to be overlaid in gold and the amount of gold required to overlay all of that would be a lot but they used 29 talents worth of gold. And this guy's got a little more than that. When the whole temple was built, they overlaid the whole thing. All the gold overlays in the temple amounted to 3,000 talents. And um, the queen of Sheba, when she comes to visit Solomon, I, I don't know if you remember, it's a historic visit. The queen of Sheba comes and pays homage, in a sense, to Solomon's incredible wealth. And you say, what do you get the guy who has everything? What do, you, what do you give to Solomon to be proportionate with the incredible wealth that Solomon has and that Solomon represents in the world? So Sheba goes through everything that she possesses and she decides to give him a gift of 120 talents of gold. And that was considered lavish and proportionate with Solomon's worth. So this guy owes 10,000 talents. So I can just lay it to you straight. Some people, equivalent, uh, some people say that's equivalent to about $4.5 billion. <laughs> this guy is in debt. $4.5 billion. And I didn't lead with that because everybody says billion and nobody has an idea of what a billion even is. But can you imagine, like, I don't know if you watch Dave Ramsey. you ever just, like, go on YouTube and, like, watch the callers and realize, oh, gosh, <laughs> this guy... So people call in and they run their plans by him to get out of debt and he like helps them baby step through it. Can you imagine 
Like, thanks for taking my call. I'm trying to babysit my way out of four and a half billion dollars in household debt. He'd be like, you're stupid, ain't nothing gonna, you know, like there's no way that you're gonna baby step your way out of this insurmountable amount of debt that Jack owes the king. So it's another way really of saying like a bazillion dollars. Jack owes the king more than he could ever realistically hope to repay any one man in any one lifetime. So notice Jack's response to the king in light of all that context. Verse 26, he says to the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. So in desperation, he's confronted with this insurmountable debt and his impulse is to say, you know, man, I, I, I get it. Just give me a couple minutes. Give me a week or two. I promise I'm, I'm going to work my behind off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this happen. Just imagine the ridiculousness of knowing the magnitude of the debt and then hearing somebody say, I'm just going to try a little harder. I'll just put in a couple more hours at the office and I can get you something. I, I know I can get you something. Um, imagine what a reasonable response would have been from the king to see somebody in way over his head and thinking that just a little bit more is going to cut it. Doesn't that sound familiar? We know that our sin debt is so insurmountable. Yet, we often, I often find myself saying to the Lord, I can do a little better. I'll do a little better. I'll try a little harder. I'll, I'll lead with a bit more integrity. I'll memorize scripture a little more faithfully. And maybe that'll cut it. Can we work out a payment arrangement, Lord? I find myself talking in these legalistic ways to the Lord. And the Lord has every right to just cast that out of his presence because it's not going to work. No payment arrangement can ever be made or even considered. But look at the king's response. Even though Jack is still a legalist, the king said in verse 7, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him. Think of the relief that it must be when you really realize the weight of debt that lifts off your shoulders. There's no way to really describe lifting that much weight off of somebody's shoulders. There's no way to put it into context. The relief that must have been felt by a guy that owed that much and was truly forgiven. No way to describe it. And you know why there's no way to describe it? Because it didn't really sink in for old Jack. He didn't really realize that he had been forgiven, and he surely didn't act like it. So let's look at the second part here, an impossible response. So here comes Jack. Jack's out of the palace. Jack's like strutting down the street. He knows he's got a little bit less on his shoulders. He knows he's a little bit more freed up. He knows he can take that stimulus check and go buy a little something, something that he's wanted for a little while. He's got an infusion of relief, a little bit, until Jack runs across Guy number two, let's call guy number two Hank, just for simplicity here. So Jack sees Hank. Hank owes Jack money. Jack has just went through this experience with the king and been forgiven $4.5 billion. And Jack sees Hank and remembers that he's owed a little bit of money. Hank owes him the equivalent of $18 in today's money. <laughs> it's like one large pizza from Rockies. $18 the guy owes him. And when he sees him and he remembers that debt and he remembers that he truly is owed something and he has the right to request repayment of that debt, what bubbles up in his heart is not the mercy that he just received, but a demand for justice, a demand for payment, reconciliation. So he takes it old school on him. He grabs him, chokes him, and demands that he pay what he owe. And Hank tells Jack what Jack just told the king. He says, have patience on me and I will repay the debt. Just give me a little time and I intend to pay this back to you. Now think about the difference between Jack and Hank's words there. They're saying the same thing, but the context makes all the difference. 
Jack is hopelessly in over his head, yet responds with a little more works righteousness. Hank actually has a manageable debt. Hank actually has something that could be worked out between the two of them and says, have a little patience and, and we can come to terms. Restoration can happen. This debt really can go away. It's 18 bucks. Do you want to split it? Do you want me to Venmo you? Like, this is something that we can handle right now on the spot. But Jack's not having that. Jack says, I'm owed something. And until I get it, ain't nothing going to be right. I don't want you to think about it in two weeks. I don't want to have to text you one more time. I demand repayment right now. And so Jack sends Hank off to prison. Because back in the day, debtor's prison was a thing. And until you were paid back, you could request that somebody be incarcerated. So to the full extent of the law, Jack is making sure he gets what's owed to him. It's just such an impossible response. Why, 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 why would Jack act that way? Directly after being forgiven such an incalculable sum, it has to be because he didn't really understand the weight of what had just happened to him. He wasn't really abs- absorbing the depth of forgiveness that had happened. And, and it was not translating to the ability to reconcile with other people. John MacArthur says, compared with our sins against God, our sins against each other, our trifles, our debt is unpayable. The other debts that we incur with people compared with God's forgiveness is easily payable. But the point is, when we've received forgiveness so vast, so far-reaching, so comprehensive, how can we be so small as to not forgive each other? That's easy to say until we get into the deep waters of forgiveness that, that we really do walk through in our real lives. But what John MacArthur is saying, he's saying on purpose. I don't think he's making light of, and I'm not making light of the fact that we are walking through deep waters and we carry things and people have sinned against us in ways that are real in ways that are so deep that who knows if we'll ever get around to it and only God's grace could make a dent in it and after years of working and striving maybe forgiveness only gets so far reconciliation only gets so far I'm not minimizing the fact that people do incredibly wrong things against us but what John MacArthur is saying and what I'm trying to amplify is that the perspective shift between the lengths that the Lord goes for us and even the deepest hurt that we can experience person to person make forgiveness possible. So we have the image of forgiveness. Second point is we have an imperative to forgive. So here's two parallel statements that I want to show you. I think they'll be on the screen. I can't remember. Um, Maybe not. The first one is, if we've truly experienced God's forgiveness, we'll be radically forgiving toward others. I don't think they're on the screen, so I'll say it again. If we're truly experiencing God's forgiveness, we'll be radically forgiving towards others. And then the flip side of that is, if we're unforgiving, resentful, or bitter toward others, then it's a sure sign that we're not living out of the deep joy and freedom that the gospel offers to us. So, two points that I just want to make, two flip sides, so that we can identify and diagnose um, issues of unforgiveness in our own lives. And uh, take a picture of this, go back to the live stream and find the screenshot. I think this will be really uh, borne out in a life group discussion um, to say, what does unforgiveness look like? What does forgiveness look like? Can this apply to anything that's going on right now in your heart? Can this apply to something in your family? Can you be leading your children through this in a way that's going to really set them up to follow the Lord in a profound way? Can you be leading your wife through this? Can you be encouraging your husband in this? So let's look at what unforgiveness looks like. So here are just a a couple, not from the text, pointers to say, uh, what could it be looking like um, if I'm walking in unforgiveness towards somebody else? Because sometimes we're not even aware of the sin that's, that's residing in our own hearts. So sometimes we need a little bit of pointers to maybe 
lock in on it. So number one, what if you've distanced yourself from somebody in a way that's new? Two, maybe you feel uncomfortable around somebody that you used to hang out with all the time or that you used to not have a problem with. All of a sudden there's this nagging thing um, and you can't put your finger on it. Number three, are, are there folks that you don't enjoy being around like you used to? And maybe you know it's because of that one thing and, and maybe you honestly need to think about it a little deeper, but what happened? Is it an issue of annoyance? Because that's another thing. But, and the gospel calls us toward forbearance with brothers, brothers and sisters whenever we just have personality issues, annoyances, things like that. The, the Bible really does speak to that. But our topic today is, um, what if your brother or sister has sinned against you? How does, how does forgiveness and reconciliation happen there? And how do you identify if maybe there's a separation because of a sin issue between you and somebody else? Maybe you don't enjoy being around them like you used to. Or maybe you see that person and you find yourself rehearsing a tense moment that you've had with them, a certain disagreement, a certain phrase or group of words that was said a certain action or expression. It can be something that you may not even want to say out loud because it seems so trivial, but it's leading you toward the fact that there may be an issue of unforgiveness happening there. So these questions are things that I've found helpful in my own life as I've tried to prompt myself towards saying, is forgiveness something that needs to happen? Um, so what does unforgiveness look like? Maybe these can point you in the right direction. Um, so there's that. We'll move on to what does forgiving others look like? And there's four points here too. So the first thing, and the most important thing, the point of the parable, I would say, is that in order to forgive others, you have to put life and you have to put actions interpersonally in gospel perspective. So Corey, there's this like little cross chart thing. Can you put that up? This is what I was talking about before. And you'll see this in a workbook, if you ever have a gospel Center life workbook. So you have time happening, and then at the point of conversion, you see our image of God and his holiness getting larger, our awareness of sin getting deeper and deeper and deeper in the cross, holding it up right there. And that gap between his holiness and our sinfulness is the debt that has been forgiven. It's our... Um, understanding of that reality. And it's only going to grow, even in eternity, as, as we get to the Lord, we're going to realize that that debt is orders of magnitude larger than we could have even perceived here. But as it continues to grow, our thankfulness for the cross can grow too. So what I want to show you really in this chart, when it comes to forgiveness, is that all disagreements, all deep wounds, all disownments, all family wrongs that seem unforgivable. No matter how deep the wounds are between you and that person, they all occur on this bottom line here, the awareness of man's sinfulness. They are offenses against a holy God, but the differences and the wounds and the disparities could be represented as tiny hills and valleys along this bottom line not even comparable to the actual gap of God's forgiveness that has actually happened. Even the deepest wound would be a small divot on this bottom line compared to the forgiveness that we've received. So whenever we look at an issue that seems intractable, uh, a person that you never even want to broach the subject with because you don't even know what you would say, or maybe you do, and that's why you're not saying it, how do you even begin to think about that issue? It has to start with gospel perspective. You're not going to make it to the start line if you don't have gospel perspective. So that's the first tip uh, for forgiving others. Put things in gospel perspective. The second thing, and this is where we get beautiful pictures of God's salvation. Second thing is take the initiative. Forgiving others looks like taking the the initiative. So let's talk about salvation for a second here. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we have the precedent of knowing that 
before any repentance ever took place, before any desire for repentance ever sprung up in our hearts, placed there by the Holy Spirit, uh, before any sort of movement toward God ever occurred, God had already begun moving toward us in forgiveness. The debt cancellation had already occurred before any repentance was ever considered in our own hearts. God had already moved so far toward us and forgiven so much before any desire to reconcile had ever crossed our minds. And in the same way, whenever we look at that other person and we know that they started it and that's why this is the way it is. It just seems so natural to say, well, if they want to talk about it, then we'll make it right. And it's easy for that to simmer. And I've seen that in my own life, even recently. You just let it simmer because you want that other person to take the first step. And if they can come out and take that step and be a man about it, then maybe we'll settle this and we'll make this right. If the Lord did that with us, none of us would be standing here. None of us would be standing here. So, in an image of God, he calls us to move first. Aren't you glad God moves first in salvation? And so in interpersonal reconciliation and forgiveness, we are called as believers to make the first move, to take the first step, to bring it up. It's going to be awkward, right? But the Lord cut through that too. So we're called to take that first step and take the initiative. And it's a beautiful picture of God's salvation when we do. The third thing, forgiveness toward others after we've put things in perspective, taken the initiative, um, forgiveness looks like opening the door to reconciling. True biblical forgiveness, true life together as, as we live together more, as more life group meetings happen, as more cookouts happen, as more members get added, as the relationships only get more history and more complication, there's gonna need to be real forgiveness and reconciliation or this is not going to work. It's, we're not going to like each other. We're not going to be picturing the gospel toward one another if we don't have this. And I think that forgiveness shouldn't stop at, I'm sorry, let's cancel the debt. When we see the Lord, he's not only looking to cancel the debt, he's looking to draw folks to, unto himself. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that Christ is reconciling the world to himself, and that's his mission. And so as we look to offer forgiveness toward people, we should also be opening the door for a restoration of fellowship. Now this is where you have to talk about the individual issue. This is where it could take hours, and maybe should take hours, because it's worth it. But opening the door for reconciliation is where the Lord is leading us. We should plead for the offender's relationship with God and our relationship with God to be restored. Not just for things to be cool between the two of you, but you wanting what God wants for the other person. Even if that person is choosing not to even admit any guilt, wanting what God wants for the offending party. Not just choosing to not have bitterness. You know, that can be a selfish thing. That can be selfishly motivated. I'm going to choose to release bitterness because if I continue to walk in it, it's going to cripple me. That's a true statement, but that's part of it. That's only part of it. We have to want what God wants, even for the offending party. So imagine this. Here's an illustration that obviously didn't come from me because it's about having two little kids, but I think it, under, it illustrates the point well. So imagine two brothers... They're out in the backyard, they're playing, and one of them does something that the other one really like instantly recognizes is going to get them in trouble. And I don't know what age tattletaling starts or ends, or maybe it never ends. It probably never ends, honestly. But like the one, the one son, he does something and instantly, boom, like a heat-seeking missile, the other one's like, ooh, I'm going to tell on you. Oh man, you better wait till dad gets home. Dad gets home. He puts the car in park and the dude's like doing the little dance by the door. He's like so happy. He's, he's going to be the first person 
to talk to dad. And instantly when dad opens the door, he's like, uh, guess what he did? And he tells him every little juicy detail about the wrong thing that the other brother did. And uh, the dad is just like, okay, you done? <laughs> Thanks for sharing. And so as a good dad would, he recognizes what happened. He recognizes that it's really wrong. Discipline happens on the one kid. And while the one kid is receiving the discipline, the other kid's like, you know, like he got what he wanted. He wanted to get the other guy in trouble. Did the other guy deserve to be in trouble? Yeah, probably. But little dude should not be so happy about it. But he's really like getting a kick out of this. And so as the discipline uh, is over for the first kid, uh, the other kid hears, hey son, come in here for a minute. And then like the dude wants to just like melt <laughs> into a little puddle and like go underneath the floorboards or something. So he goes over to his dad and his dad said, hey, you know that thing that he did, it was wrong, but it definitely didn't have to be a big deal. It definitely could have been corrected. You could have worked with him and you could have made it right. Um, but I know what was going on in your heart and you saw an opportunity to just throw him under the bus and you did it. Um, he says, because you didn't help him and you didn't want to see him delivered from that trouble, um, then you're going to get some discipline too. So in the same way, when we see offense really happening, um, is our desire for the other person to just get what's coming? Or is it our desire to restore the brother and see true fellowship and rightness happen? Is our desire to actually see right? Or is our desire to see other people get punished for what they deserve? So even if somebody offends you, are we wanting what God wants in their life? Are we willing to confront them about, about the sin? Are we willing to have the tough conversation with them and selflessly say, I want you to be reconciled with God more than I want you to say I'm sorry? I think that's where we're building community. I think that's where we're imaging the gospel the best. When even in the offense, our desire is for God to be glorified more than us to just I'm sorry. So last point here, and I think that this is really kind of where the rubber meets the road for a lot of us in the tougher situations. Uh, when reconciliation does not happen, when the person doesn't even admit that a wrong has occurred, when the person uh, not only just doesn't see it the way you see it, but doesn't even want to talk about it, when it's a non-starter kind of situation, the Lord does call us to forgive he does call us to cancel the debt. And he does still want reconciliation to happen for that person. But what if it doesn't happen the first time? <laughs> or the fourth time? You know, that's real life. What if it's been years and the conversation has not moved an inch because nothing has really changed? I believe that the gospel uh, holds us to the standard that we should be praying for a breakthrough in that situation. And maybe it's easy at the beginning to want what God wants to be holding the rope in But it's also easy for that to fade over time. Um, I think that God, that God calls us to persist in praying for reconciliation, even if it takes years sometimes. Um, we have to let our view of God's sovereignty inform our prayer life. So if we really believe that we're not going to be doing the convincing, if we really believe that we can't change anybody's heart, uh, then we have to be driven to prayer, knowing that only the Spirit can change that person's heart. Um, and I believe, and, and I wish that I would have thought of a specific story to tell you, but I'm sure that you know of, of times where folks have persisted in prayer for somebody for years and years and years and they wandered and they wandered uh, but then you got the joy of reconciliation even if it's long delayed God calls us to be faithful in that to pray even after the situation has cooled off to not forget about them but to want what God wants so in closing uh, Bob Thune says this in the gospel centered life 
He says forgiveness is costly. It means canceling a debt when we feel that we have every right to demand payment. It means absorbing the pain, hurt, shame, and grief of someone else's sin against us. It means longing for repentance and restoration. But this is exactly how God has acted toward us in Christ. And through the gospel, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the very same thing toward other people. My hope and my goal is that information like this can be like a diving board um, for you in your homes, for you in your life group, for you in your D group, for you with your spouse, for you with your kids, um, to talk about things that may have been around for a long time, but things that God is calling us toward movement on for his own glory and for our joy. To have hard conversations, um, but to do it because it's worth it. And to do it because um, God calls us to be interdependent on one another. Um, to seek advice from brothers and sisters on, on how to even broach the conversation. To be strong together in this and, and to see more progress than you could ever have if you were just trying to do this on your own like a Lone Ranger. The Lord is calling us to lots and lots and lots of beautiful reconciliation moments like that that are going to be pictures of the gospel. So let's ask for more of them together. God, we thank you for an opportunity to crack the book open and to see things that are painful and to see things that are uncomfortable and that we definitely don't want to talk about with other people, much less bring up uh, to ourselves. God, help us to push past that knowing that you're worth it. Help us to um, recall the situations and be honest with ourselves about that. Help us to push in prayer toward folks whose hearts have been cold against you for a long, long time. Help us to be obedient in forgiveness, even if our hearts are not uh, postured toward it right now. Spirit, empower us to walk in obedience. We pray this in your name. Amen.